Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Welcome to the third episode of the AMR Studio. If you are a new listener and this is the first time you are uh, listening to the AMR Studio, we're really happy that you decided to click play. And if you are a returning listener, we hope that this episode is as interesting as the other two we had before. Our podcast has a basic structure of a feature interview. We'll have a feature interview. And then uh, Jenny uh, Jackman, the co-host, and I are going to have a discussion about that uh, interview, clarifying a couple of terms and also kind of bringing up what was the most interesting parts of that interview. And then we're going to have a short news section. We're going to talk uh, about um, a couple of uh, recent research has been published in the topic of antibiotic resistance. So this episode, we have a, an interview with uh, Dr. Anne Kevem Lee. She is a medical historian from the University of Oslo, and she was here back in September as part of our regular seminar series at USC. This interview was recorded particularly on the 7th of September of this year, 2018. And this date is kind of relevant because at the beginning of her interview, you're going to listen that she talks about events that happened right then, the same week, we watched the, the burning of the Brazil's National Archive. And as her being a medical historian, definitely this was something important that has happened worldwide for, for, for history, right? This interview was also recorded before we got good uh, microphones and equipment. So we apologize if the sound of the interview is not as good as what the, the rest of the episode sounds like. Anyway, uh, I hope the content kind of compensates for that. Thank you so much, and uh, we hope that you enjoy the interview. We have Associate Professor Anne Kvam Lee here with us today. If you'd like to introduce yourself and what you do now. Yeah, I can do that. So I have a background in medicine and in uh, uh, history of ideas. Uh, and uh, I did my PhD on um, now forgotten disease called the Radesyke, which brought me into the history of infectious diseases. And then six years ago, I started working on the history of antibiotics. I've done that on and off since that. I'm working at a small section for medical history and medical anthropology at the medical faculty at the University of Oslo. I am still qualified as a physician, so I work every year, but only, you know, I play a doctor <laughs> in, the, in northern Norway two or three weeks. So that's how I came into antibiotic resistance, because I really, it started un, unsettling me and concerning mm-hmm. me. And uh, so I was really a personal interest to, on your yeah, part to get into yeah, the field. Yeah. But how did you get into the medical history in itself from the uh, medical background? How did you get into medical history? So I guess well, it's a really stupid reason, and that's that I was bored at medical school. I know that now as a teacher for medical students, but I didn't know that then. But the classes are so different. So in one class, there can be these, you know, fascinating people with broad perspectives. In another class, there's only people, you know, wanting to study very hard and only do that and not being interested (laughs) in anything else. And I was really, I was in such a class and I was Mm -hmm. so bored. So I wanted to, you know, broaden my perspectives. So then I started studying intellectual history. I really liked it. Mm -hmm. And then I got a student scholarship from the Norwegian 
Children Research Council because they started a program on cultural aspects of health. Uh, and I did that for one year. Um, and then I applied for a PhD scholarship when I finished doing my internship as a physician. Okay. So I guess that. So I've, I've been interested. But, you know, even you know, until one year ago, I did not really know what to be when I grew up. And now <laughs> I'm 49. So actually, I think finally I've decided, still decide. <laughs> decided to stay in academia. But that has yes. been, uh, you know, very schizophrenic on my side. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So it was really just an interest from your part to get into this history. Yeah. But so the AMR, you said it was from a, um, that you were disturbed by how is that was there any specific thing that, that brought you any specific event yes or well yeah i can i can say something about that and that was because you know in in it still is like that that we, it takes a long time until you see patients at least a lot mm-hmm. and we st- the in first the medical, yeah in medical yeah, school yeah. and the first patient i saw was a dead patient we were doing the dissection mm-hmm. and uh, then i you know i was really i i remember writing my first text about that because i was so you know i was so amazed that that, that they could do that mm-hmm. i mean that that was the first patient they would show us was a yeah. dead person and without giving them any history or any individual information it was just this dead body and then I started reading Michel Foucault which is a intellectual historian who has mm-hmm. worked with the history of the body and so on and that interested me a lot so that's more precisely okay. how I ended up doing history of mm-hmm. or intellectual history of all things it could have been you know sociology anthropology or something like that yeah but for AMR specifically was there any specific event that brought you into antimicrobial resistance you said your, yeah, your actually, PhD was in a forgotten disease yeah but that was also an infectious disease mm-hmm. probably so it was the infectious disease and syndrome. I've been working on the history of syphilis and so I guess you know history of infectious disease has kind always of ties together, interested guess, me yeah. but then it was no it was actually clinical practice every summer mm-hmm. and I saw you know every now and then resistant infections and one day I got a, that was actually a refugee from there's a refugee center up there mm-hmm. and he had resistant tuberculosis and then I started you know reading up on MRTV and I got really concerned and mm-hmm. I had heard about you know antibiotic resistance for a while and then actually we applied for money and we got research money from the Norwegian Research Council to do a study on the history of antibiotic resistance. So that was how we started. It's a very personal entrance into yeah. the field. <laughs> yeah. Just a side question. Do you feel that there's enough respect for the issue with antibiotic resistance in the medical field today? You said you still were, you're still a practicing clinician from time to time. Do you... Well, it depends. Have this respect for the problem. I think it's really increasing a lot. That's uh, good to hear. Yeah, I think so, and I think also it depends on whether you are in primary care or in specialist care, and whether and where you are in the specialist care. So, I mm-hmm. um, in intensive care units, they are at least my experience is that they are really wary of the discourse on antibiotic resistance because they. They only see the sickest mm-hmm. or the most ill patients and they are afraid that, yeah. uh, you know, people will stop treating infections and then they will get more seriously ill patients. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is not the case. In primary healthcare, I see much improvement. I don't know whether that is because physicians are better at prescribing uh, or prescribe less or whether it is because uh, patients are also increasingly aware of this and mm-hmm. ask for less. But, you know, several studies have shown that physicians think or they overrate the extent to which patients want antibiotics. When you actually ask them, they want less than the physicians think. 
Uh, and research has also shown that, you know, um, in, in Norway, every primary care physician has a fixed number of patients on his, mm -hmm. his or her list, and they can modify that. And the physician with more patients on their list, they prescribe more. So when okay. you have less time with your patients, you prescribe more, okay. which is... It makes sense, so but think... it's unfortunate. I mean, it maybe minimizes the quality or kind of just... Yeah. throwing whatever you can at the problem but it is this something time, that the, you know? they discuss that colleagues discuss between each other at yeah absolutely that, yeah this problem so i see that even in you know in in northern norway i work in a very small practice where we are uh, five physicians three nurses and there's a lot of awareness on, of mm -hmm. that now but even still i mean there's still too much i think of yeah. a broad spectrum antibiotics in the cupboard that we have for the emergency okay. we are on call you yeah. know in the evenings and weekends and we have a cupboard where we can choose medications and mm -hmm. I think it's too much of uh, broad-spectrum okay. antibiotics there. But I think that's also changing and I've, I really see a change in the medical profession but I don't know whether this is true but my personal experience yeah, personal is that experiences it are valuable. Yeah. It's, it's important. I mean, we can yeah. sit and say whatever we want about the clinic but you yeah. don't know until you're yeah. there and see yeah. how, what's actually happening. And I think just the mindset of the people working in the clinics is very important and if that's the change that maybe pushes things along yeah. that's yeah it's no, something really, we can do <laughs> you know there's been so norway has never been as good at working with antibiotic resistance as sweden but mm -hmm. they have sort of come along and now we have a center for antibiotic resistance in primary health care and they're really doing an excellent job so i think it's it's good to hear it's yeah it's finally getting there and they're doing courses online but mm -hmm. it's there's always more to do there's always more to do so as a someone who's worked in the clinic and as a medical historian, since the UAC is a multidisciplinary mm -hmm. center with lots of different focuses, yeah. how do you see that your perspective coincides with others? Well, I've, I've worked a lot with uh, other historians, other physicians, other mainly social scientists like anthropologists and sociologists in this area. There's, uh, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, this center collaborates also with, um, uh, there's an, a center called uh, AMIS, Antimicrobials in Society in England, and there's also a center in Amsterdam and there's increasing attention to the need for social science mm -hmm. perspectives including history on AMR and antibiotic resistance and I think that's crucial and important and good because it was a lack for a long time yeah. that it was you know Still, it's and, and now we have a, a life science initiative at the University of Oslo, and we're really trying to bring up a truly interdisciplinary research agenda focusing on uh, low-income countries and mm -hmm. structural perspectives and combine that with microbiological and infectious disease perspectives. How do you feel that these collaborations work? Personally, do you feel that everybody's different experiences and expertises are respected, or do you feel like there's still some work to do along that path that... Um, definitely <laughs> definitely more work yeah. to do <laughs> definitely but you know when it comes to practice because mm -hmm. it's i've experienced so much so there's in this life science initiative there's mm -hmm. so-called convergence in environments and they have an intention to follow the responsible research and innovation emphasis that mm -hmm. is currently you know um so they want to include social science and humanities perspectives 
and they actually demand that. So if you apply as a basic scientist for money, you will not get that money unless you have a social science or humanities uh, perspective on board. What I've experienced a lot is that people call me oh, the last day before they submit the application and say, oh, can you just put in a history <laughs> historian's perspective on this? And I deny that because I truly think that we have to develop such projects together. And we also had a speed dating meeting recently with, you know, and sometimes, you know, I just see them when I present my uh, approach to this field. It's just so large question marks. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, how can I? They just don't see how they can use it. Yeah. So my experience is that it's actually better with people who are not experienced before an interdisciplinarity works better if we try to include them than the mm -hmm. other way around because they often have problems people are used to know, what they've already thinking done thinking more rolling yeah yeah but that's i mean that goes for us as well yeah. i guess so you have to have some kind of experience in interdisciplinarity mm -hmm. in order to it's a practice you have to learn that in a way. yeah of course it's yeah. it's like everything else it requires some exercise in the process yeah, yeah. hopefully it's moving in the right direction yeah but do you see that? But I think centers, I just, you know, when I see this center, I think that's a, such a great initiative because you're co-located as well, right? You sit at the same uh, place. Yes, there's different, uh, there's members in the student group from all different faculties. So yes, this is trying to put a lot of value, but I mean, we do notice that it does often end up being the, the natural sciences perspective, the microbiology perspective, the drug development yeah. or resistance mechanisms. It's sometimes, even when you tr we're trying to, really have a, a multidisciplinary approach, we tend to value one sort of research higher than the other, often valuing quantitative research over qualitative research. Mm. But hopefully it's not going to continue that way. <laughs> um, yeah. And especially in such a problem as antimicrobial resistance, mm. it's the sort of thing where we've already seen that this problem will not be solved by one yeah, discipline exactly. in itself. Yeah. And Hopefully yeah. we can continue in that path. Uh, but if you look at antimicrobial resistance research as a whole right now, uh, what do you think is missing from your point of view? I think it's improving with the inclusion of the social science and humanities perspective. Oh, well, let me just first start. I cannot say that I'm fully up to date on all the sort of uh, basic science and clinical science no research. No, no, I know. But so, so let me say that I, I just, you know, speak from myself and uh, I still see uh, social science and humanities perspectives lacking in, mm -hmm. in very many areas. There's often, you know, they just mention all oh, beliefs are important, but mm -hmm. they tend to associate beliefs and behavior with, you know, individual behavior and then they forget that there's a whole society or culture mm -hmm. behind you know all from everything from socioeconomic background to culture determining how you behave or how you your your behavior so i think that's really important to include that not just as you know individual behavior but is seen in a broader perspective so that's See populations yeah. rather than individuals yeah and I, I also think we need to know more of history because mm -hmm. there's uh there's a colleague of mine from harvard a very good friend of mine scott podolsky who has written a wonderful book on antibiotic resistance antimicrobial resistance but in antibiotic resistance in mm -hmm. particular uh, which is good but we need 
more and we need more because uh, there's, you know, when you look back, there's so many similar things. History is never repeating itself, but it's important to have a look at the past when you're yes. making the future, right? So I think it's important to see what have the guidelines been, how were they developed, what kind of resistance did I meet with? I think what is really lacking is sort of an attention to the history of microbes. In some places there are archives of the uh, resistance patterns and so on. We don't know anything about that. And I think we should do a sort of broader uh, history, not only of politics and society, but also of a history of microbes. And it's an interesting approach, to, yeah. instead of just looking at the... Yeah. As I was about to ask, uh, maybe we can or maybe we can learn from our mistakes in the past as a society yeah. and get better at certain things like that. But like you say, the history of the microbes would be important in a yeah. different way. It's a sort of historical epidemiology yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be really interesting yeah. if it was developed more. Yeah, so I, I don't think that's done sufficiently. And then also I've been interested in history of drug regulation in regards to antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And countries have done that very different ways. And I think there are things to be lessons to be learned from the Swedish history, from the Norwegian history, but also from the Dutch history. That mm -hmm. is, we do not know enough of these histories. Uh, and then it's also, I mean, there is a lot of attention now to the lack of surveillance in uh, Africa, for instance, and but there's too little attention to the traffic of pharmaceuticals from China to Africa, mm. from all the sort of South-South global yeah. uh, health politics going on and influencing antibiotic resistance, how these increasingly strict, you know, recommendations from, among other places, the WHO is going to be taken up in local areas. Are they good? I mean, how can yeah. you expect poor farmers to suddenly, you know, become free of antimicrobials when that has actually sustained their jobs and their families and everything. I mean, how can we work with ensuring that policies will not be too severe for people that we really need to engage in, mm -hmm. in the work against antimicrobial resistance if we're going to succeed? So, Do you think we can use maybe a historical analysis of how, I mean, we're trying to remove antibiotics from like you said, for example, agricultural practices in middle and lower income countries, among other things, and high income countries for that matter. Yeah. But maybe we could use other historical times when we've had to change agricultural practices and look at how that might affect this new change as well. Not just from antimicrobial purposes, but from, I don't even know, maybe uh, times of famine or when there's been droughts or weather issues that have changed things. Maybe we could learn some things from those problems and put them on this problem. Yeah try to broaden the perspective a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, the One Health perspective is opening up so many other areas that mm -hmm. can be relevant for research. But, you know, for a historian, it's simply the problem of sources, that we need yeah. sources. So some places don't even have, you know, and now recently you probably saw that, but the whole, you know, the National Archive of Brazil just burned down. Yeah. And Brazil has actually had, <laughs> uh, it's so sad that they have had an archive. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, low-income countries whose archives are very scarce or do not. Mm -hmm. And even in Norway, you know, we haven't, or and Sweden, there's a lot of things we haven't kept. If no. they were not considered important at the time, they were not kept. So that's a problem of sources. But definitely, yeah, it's a very good idea and I, I support that that we should broaden our perspective on what would be relevant for history and mm -hmm. also in the longer term see what have happened when you know and maybe start valuing practices. archives yeah. trying to take yeah. care of archives in different countries as yeah. well not just our own. yeah definitely as a medical historian, what do you find is most misunderstood about your field? I think the most misunderstood thing is that top medical journals have good history stuff because they don't. 
They have very poor history stuff. So these are not well looked upon by my peers because it's simply not good according to good scientific standards. They don't look into archives. So when physicians, uh, and it's often when they become retired or something like that, they look into history, they think that it's sufficient just to look at these, you know, three pages, (laughs) articles in The Lancet and then boom, full stop. And very often the things that comes with that is that mistakes are repeated over and over again because they just cite that article who just claimed something they couldn't substantiate Mm -hmm. and then it's just repeated all over again. So I guess, yeah, that's probably within the medical field the most misunderstood thing about history. But in the public... Every time I'm on the radio or something talking about and which happens not so infrequently because, you know, they are interested in medical history. Mm-hmm. I've always asked about the future, which is interesting. Why would you ask a medical historian <laughs> about the future? I always try to ask, but I always feel horribly at loss because I don't think, you know, <laughs> we are not very good at talking about the future. <laughs> no, it's, it's hard to say. <laughs> Who is right yeah. to talk about the future in that case? But well, yeah, no, nobody is, no, except but, for scenario planners and so on. But to jump back a bit, you mentioned that, for example, The Lancet maybe wouldn't publish a medical history piece in the right way. I wonder if this is something with all, I mean, these frontline journals, nature, science, everything, even in the biomedical field, if we mm. broaden it a little bit, it always has to be something new, something innovative. Mm. It, it's not, we're going to go back and make sure this was done right. Are we basing our assumptions on something that's true? If we take the time to see if everything's right, and this is something big in the uh, natural sciences field that we talk about, the failure to reproduce experiments and these mm. re- these really famous experiments, and then you can't go back and reproduce them, and we're not sure if, mm. is this really good research? Mm. I recognize that when you say this about the that they don't publish medical history, it has to be something new and maybe a small thing, and then it's, it's not well, really Well, they do, true. you know, that that's kind of worrying me, because they do publish medical history, but they do publish bad medical history. Okay. Because it's not done, very often it's not done by professionals and it's not, you know, done so roughly. So they don't go to archives, they don't interview people, they just, you know, assume things and then cite some other articles in other high-impact medical journals. So they don't read good secondary literature, they don't do proper studies by themselves. Which, of course, there's some exceptions to this, but, you know, I've written about this because it's funny because they seem to regard medical history as sort of vacation stuff. So it often comes around Christmas or around summer, probably because then they assume that physicians have time to read history, which is also okay with me. It wasn't okay with me 20 years ago, but now I'm, I recognize that, that physicians are busy. But so it often comes in this, and Richard Horton has said explicitly that the editor of The mm-hmm. Lancet, that he's really interested in, in history, and I believe him, but they don't really publish good history articles. No. Maybe uh, their patterns don't change overnight either. Maybe it'll, in a while, they'll realize what good but they also though. don't get because historians know that if they are to yeah. publish in the Lancet, they only get three pages, and three pages is not no. enough to you know do a good history article. That's very true. Yeah. So I also don't think they get too much. So I have American colleagues who have started now a collaboration with New England Journal of Medicine, mm-hmm. and in the attempt to really try to get some medical history across, so they do shorter versions of their other history articles okay. and publish them in New England uh, Medical Journal, and really try to direct them towards the medical readership. And maybe not ideal that they wouldn't be able to read the whole article, but that's a really good step Yeah, I way. think it's a good... I don't expect physicians to read history no. articles, so I think this Everyone is a really a good solution. Yeah. And then at least they sort of know these are good historians. Yeah, that's mm. good. 
hopefully that'll continue in other yeah. places. <laughs> Are you currently working on any projects looking at the history of antimicrobial resistance? Just from personal interest, to be fun yeah. here. <laughs> so right now I'm writing up an article on what I'm going to present today, which mm -hmm. is uh, which I call the uh, antibiotic futures. And in that, I'm looking at both our current uh, antibiotic futures, what we today see as the future of antibiotics or without antibiotics, which mm -hmm. is most often the case today. Post-antibiotic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Post-antibiotic, antibiotic apocalypse, and yeah. all this kind of, you know, <laughs> really dark. new middle age or so on. Yeah. And so I've uh, what I've done, uh, and I started that work together with my colleague Scott Podolsky. So we wrote mm -hmm. an article about that based on the American material three years ago, I think. Uh, and now I've sort of broadened that and try to write more about also our current uh, futures and bring in quite a lot of historical futures from uh, Scandinavia as well, because we tend to forget the past always. And mm -hmm. um, as historians, we tend to forget the past futures because they some of them never came true, right? Mm -hmm. So then we forget them as false or something yeah. like that. But futures, and that is one of my arguments, that futures are doing some work mm -hmm. they are motivating people for action for policy making for you know new regulations so futures actually are performative in a sense they make things happen so therefore yeah. futures are important although they don't come true mm -hmm. right it's, very so interesting. it's the, a little bit hard to wrap your head around it the first yeah. time you hear it but it, it's a really yeah. interesting perspective i really like it yeah. <laughs> so today is actually you know a past future so mm -hmm. this they envisioned 2018 in yeah. 1950 and so <laughs> One. So, so I'm looking into this, but you know, mm -hmm. it's not only difficult to envision a past future, but there were several different futures yes. at the same time, of course. Mm -hmm. And they're so, very dependent on the historical context, yeah, and it must be absolutely. really hard to go back in. A lot of these are feeling-based yeah. and fear-based, and especially the absolutely. antibiotic situation. It must be really hard to go back and try to replicate yeah. this and understand the, yeah. the situation at the time. Yeah, but you know, it's the dominating future in the 1950s where, of course, those with, uh, you know, the magic bullet had finally mm -hmm. arrived and now we will get rid of infectious disease. Mm -hmm. So there were even, you know, scenarios of a future without no need for doctors because, you know, infectious disease away, no need for doctors. Then there were these scenarios of overpopulation because what would we do when cholera and, you know, all the man killers would no longer be active? That would be overpopulation. Whoosh, boom. That was 1960s when overpopulation was sort of the big thing. But yeah. then also it was, you know, other kinds of futures that really already in the 1960s, uh, 1950s, I mean, uh, warned against damage to the environment, to the fields, to the molds, and to the animals, not mm -hmm. only to humans. So sort of, it's not the one health perspective as we think of it today, but it's actually another, yeah. you know, another kind of future. Mm -hmm. And then already, you know, in the 1960s, they discovered that resistance did not only transmit via inheritance uh, mm -hmm. vertically but also horizontally, horizontally yeah. so the so-called infective inheritance that they called mm -hmm. it and that caused a lot of fear so then they started you know there was an editorial in the New England Journal just yeah, three years after Watanabe had published his article on horizontal gene transfer and they warned about the return to the Middle Ages so then mm -hmm. already that trope was already sort of yeah. yeah so in yeah. 1966 so it's a lot of different uh, futures coming into being mm -hmm. and some of them you know passing away and then you just see then 10 years after it's turning up again mm -hmm. and and i think we need to pay attention to those futures mm -hmm. because they 
or sometimes they're just, you know, bluffs, but sometimes they actually cause change. And I'm concerned now about our current futures. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that yeah. more later. We'll have to but, uh, hear more yeah. about that later, yeah. Looking forward to it now. Thank Got you. Got a nice little <laughs> preview. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to thank you for joining us today and sitting down to talk with us. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. And if you have anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? Um, no, thank you for being here. It was really, I hope you, I hope it was understandable. I really hope, I, I really appreciate the interdisciplinary initiatives and I hope we can do more of that and appreciate that we really have to work on all together on doing it. And uh, so, and don't call a historian one day before you plan a research project. That's a good idea. <laughs> Value the other perspective. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back. I hope everyone enjoyed that interview as much as I did when I gave it. Ava, what did you think of the interview? This interview, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I must say that unfortunately I couldn't attend to Dr. Kevin Lee's uh, seminar. So for me, it was the first contact with her topic and with her work. And I must say that it is a fascinating area. I haven't thought of antibiotics and the history of antibiotics in the way that she presented it. And I, I got a whole new outlook at uh, how looking at the history and the past of the antibiotics history has uh, made an impact in how the situation is today. So I I found it interesting and very enlightening, indeed. Yeah, no, I agree. It was a really fun interview to give because it was a different field from what we normally talk about, but she's so knowledgeable in her field. Yeah, especially yeah, a lot of nice we are biologists, right? Yeah. So this, these are areas that we are not exposed to certainly every day, but uh, I would say that people working in antibiotics might not have ever think this way about yeah. antibiotic history. Um I think there were a couple of topics during the interview that I found of particular interest to perhaps talk a little bit more about. One of them, and she actually mentioned it in the end of her talk as a wrap-up, this uh, concept of one-way communication that she feels like now a lot of projects uh, require these multidisciplinary teams, but these projects are not thought in a multidisciplinary way from the beginning. So she's just called upon one week before the deadline, like, oh, we need a historian. Let's try to contact her and get her into the the talk. So I found it very uh, in coordination with our center because we Mm -hmm. are a multidisciplinary center and our idea is that we are uh, making new professionals that have this multidisciplinary outlook in the problems so they can develop projects with the disciplinary view from the very beginning. So you actually work together with people of different disciplines from the get-go to create these projects. So it's not something that you had to kind of take your hand on in the last moment and every professional can feel like part of it from the very beginning. And just also kind of promote this respect between professions for everybody's expertise is valuable. And it's not just, oh, I'll throw it in there to get the grant money. It's more of a <laughs> actually value it from the beginning and let it influence the research itself. Yes. And also the thought process of how do yeah. you want to, to come up with the, with, with the projects. I found that the, it kind of aligns a lot with the idea we have here at the UAC. Um, so that was yeah. very nice to hear. Uh, I think also it was cool and perhaps for some people revealing to hear that uh, top medical journals not always have very good history stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit sad to hear, of course, because you kind of you have a lot of faith in these top journals. But then again, we know that this is a problem. I mean, 
the top medical journals are experts at medical science, not necessarily history and medical history. So maybe there are limitations from these high-impact journals that also impact if proper historians can actually publish in these journals and if these articles that are written by historians are really fit into the journals. But I thought that it was quite nice, one thing that she mentioned where uh, medical historians are writing shorter summaries of their full articles and publishing them in these medical journals, because that's a nice way to kind of... Yeah, because you want want them to reach the right people, right? They they, As historians, they want for their work to actually be read by the medical doctors, which Mm -hmm. are who they want to reach. But if their limitations of these medical journals are uh, don't allow them to actually publish the full papers, then just doing like a side note, okay, we have published about this, this is the summary, if you Mm -hmm. want to read the whole paper. We hope that then the medical doctors can go back and read the original literature, like she mentioned, because it's not just about reading something quick and then cite it, and then Mm -hmm. that's how... Because that's the problem. A lot of people that aren't trained as historians tend to write in a different way. Like she mentioned something that they kind of just source something that maybe somebody wrote at some point. And it's not the same way for historians. They often go into, from what I've understood from Dr. Kim Lee, they go into the archive material and the original source material. They have a whole different method of how, what they see as a good source. Mm. While we, may, as natural scientists or doctors, maybe just source another study. Yeah, it's a different way of doing science, yeah. I would say. But they're different sciences that need to be respected, both yeah. in their value and how they do it. It's just you can't really use the same methods for one as the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a good point. Also, there was a topic that perhaps we should clarify a little bit uh, mentioned during the interview, which is the difference between horizontal versus vertical transmission and how this was a point in the history of antibiotic resistance was really important. So this is actually something that we mentioned in our very first episode, this uh, horizontal and vertical transmission of antibiotic resistance. But I kind of wanted to bring it up again because I'm not sure if we use these exact words. So vertical transmission is basically inherited resistance. So if mother cell becomes resistant to antibiotics, the daughter cells, air quotes, will also be resistant because they inherit the same genetic material. Yes. But these antibiotic resistance genes can also spread from cell to cell without there being an inheritance aspect to it. So that's called horizontal transmission. So this is just a little bit of a refresher reminder Yes, and this, this was an important point in, in the history of researching antibiotic resistance because one thing is that a mother uh, cell can be resistant and then all the offspring is going to be resistant. That is one way. But when you put into the equation that that mother cell can horizontally spread that resistance to other cells around that weren't resistant before, they don't come from a resistant bacteria, but now they can become resistant yeah. horizontally, then the problem of resistance kind of becomes even worse because yeah. potentially you can make all the population of bacteria resistant, not only mm-hmm. the descendants of a previously resistant bacteria. And it can come just through contact. I mean, they don't have to remain in contact. They can they can come in contact, the resistance can spread, and then they're no longer yeah. in contact. And it's not dependent on how fast the bacteria are growing or anything. It's dividing. It's just the it's spread, just the spread. Of the resistance. Yeah. So Dr. Krim Lee also mentioned in this interview a chapter that she wrote with her colleague, Scott Podolsky. And we actually got a chance to read that chapter and wanted to talk a little bit about it because we both thought it was very interesting, I think. Uh, Ava, what did you think? Yeah, so this chapter is actually titled Futures and Their Uses, Antibiotics and Therapeutic Revolutions, and it's found in a book of the same name, Therapeutic Revolutions. We will leave a link in the show notes. And uh, it, it was very uh, revealing to read this this, uh, (laughs) chapter. It was, I would say for me, not that easy Mm -hmm. because I'm very used to read scientific literature. Uh, 
and this chapter is definitely not written in a scientific language. And I, my mother tongue is Spanish, and we have a lot of complex, long sentences in Spanish. But since I've been working in science, I completely lost use of these long <laughs> sentences. That and especially they, in English. And especially in English. Yeah. And it has this uh, heavy conceptual uh, sentences. Mm -hmm. And this chapter is full of them. It is really interesting. It talks about what she mentions in both the interview and what she talked in her talk when in she was here talk, in the yeah. seminar. It's about antibiotic features and we really think that that concept of antibiotic features especially antibiotic past features it's something very interesting to talk about so let's talk a little bit about yeah. that so i think we have to start by clarifying what we mean by futures so i think dr Kremli actually did a really good description of this in the interview but i know it i struggled to understand it the first time so maybe we can so did i yeah try to talk through it again so we can maybe catch the people that aren't getting it yet because it took me a while. <laughs> yes. So what is an antibiotic future? What is a future? So what we see now as a future is based on our present. We see many different possible futures that could happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that they will come true, but there are potential things that can happen in the future. That's our present futures. If you think about it from the past, in that context of the past, there were things that we thought were going to happen. Whether or not they came true is less important, but what we thought was going to happen in the future impacted what happened at the time. Yeah, so it's like the futures we predict are contingent on the present we are living in, yeah. be it the present now or being the present back in the past. That's what exactly. we call past futures. And at the same time, these predictions, these ideas of how the future might look like, will also in return influence the measures and the actions we take at the present in yeah. the moment. So I found this, it's very mind Bending. Mind bending <laughs> yeah. because it's a little bit like Inception, isn't it? No, <laughs> like or like uni parallel universes. Mm -hmm. You have these possible futures that you postulate, be it either utopian, something very good will happen, mm -hmm. or dystopian, something will go really wrong. They are all depending on how the situation is right now, the things yeah. we know right now. And then when we postulate this, we are able to take actions to either get to these utopian futures or to avoid the dystopian futures. Mm -hmm. And they even might coincide in time. Yeah. You can be living in a situation in a moment right now where you say this really bad thing might happen, but this also this really good thing might happen, depending how you look at the, mm -hmm. at the issue. So it was it was <laughs> definitely um, a different way to look at it. I yeah. haven't looked at it that way before. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting perspective to look at it, but it kind of like it's a mind exercise to really get into it. You have to really way. stop and think about yeah. what what does it mean, what did it mean before. Mm -hmm. When it comes to antibiotics, actually, uh, reading this chapter, we got to learn that there were kind of three main antibiotic past futures that have somewhat molded the history of antibiotics, mm -hmm. right? Which ones are those futures? So this all kind of started, if we say the first future, is at the, the start of what we call, or what they also call in the chapter, the antibacterial revolution. The miracle drugs. Miracle drugs. And they say, like, maybe we don't need doctors in the future. I mean, we can cure all patients. Tuberculosis won't be a problem in the future. So this, this is, is a, a very, utopian future. Yeah, a utopian right? future where we were very hopeful. We Where people were very hopeful that there won't be these problems in the future, that these huge issues of the time won't We're basically be winning the war yeah. against my microbes, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So this relatively quickly developed into other futures. Now we're talking about after the 40s when we discover antibiotics. Yeah. Now we're moving, so moving into, into the, the 50s. 50s, 60s. I'm not, I don't remember the exact time frames of the, that they talked yeah. in the article. But after the initial like happy revolution has passed, 
there were two main coinciding futures after that point. One, looking at the pharmaceutical industry that was maybe promoting irrational use is what the, the word they tend to use. So they were talking a lot about these fixed combination drugs in the uh, this chapter that maybe weren't effective, that we weren't really looking at the efficacy or the actual safety of these drugs. Yeah, they even mentioned like uh, witchcrafting and going back to to medieval ways of looking into therapeutics of treatments. Mm -hmm. So that was one way that the like many doctors at the time were looking at it as at the future was that it'll go back into witchcraftery and all of this. So this actually, interestingly enough, led to a big change in the regulation of the drug industry. And this is looking at the U.S. specifically, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., started these clinical controlled trials and changed how we actually develop new drugs. And there were many of these combination drugs removed from the market because they turned out not to be effective. So this is an example of how a dystopian future, in order to avoid a dystopian future, we actually took actions back in what Mm -hmm. it was the present to try to avoid that and then that kind of shaped how how we regulate the, the market. And I think this is something that many of us that work in the field now don't really think about where this idea of the clinical trials came from and how, how this was affected in, in the antibiotic field. The other future that kind of happened in parallel was looking at antibiotic resistance. So seeing that this is an issue, that resistance is spreading and becoming more of a clinical problem, growing over time. And it wasn't really even that new. There was a really interesting quote in the chapter, if you have it. Yeah, so there was in 1966, actually, uh, in the New England of Medicine, there was an editorial that stated... Unless drastic measures are taken very soon, physicians might find themselves back into the pre-antibiotic middle ages in the treatment of infectious diseases. And this, have in mind, you that are listening to us right now, <laughs> this was 1966. Yes. So this, this is something that we still kind of hear these things today. It's like, a, it's still a present future, but it's an old present future that we've had in the past as well. Yes. That sentence does not make sense. It does. It does, actually. It's very, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I hope it made sense. Um, But this issue kind of collided with the other future that we're talking about with the pharmaceutical industry, because the pharmaceutical industry no longer produces a lot of new antibiotics. For many reasons, it's, it's difficult to produce these drugs uh, there's difficult regulations around it. We've talked a lot about this. We might not be already. so profitable anymore. So a lot of yeah. the pharma have retired from the yeah. So now actually, business. yeah. So now actually, there's a push for from these people talking about this third future of the antibiotic resistance problem and the post-antibiotic era, as people tend to say. There's a lot of push towards industry that we really need to start making new antibiotics. We need to push industry and these pharma companies to make new drugs, which was very different from what we saw before. So I I thought it was a very interesting collision between these futures. Yes, and that's how, yeah, they coincide and now in present, our present, they're kind of bringing it together. Yeah. And actually, Dr. Kvemli talked in her talk at the seminar more about uh, our present futures, not these past futures. And one of the, as she did mention a lot of these past futures as well, but one of the things that she talked about is the way we talk about antibiotic resistance today is very combative. And many of these headlines talk about the fight against super drugs or the battle against bacteria. It's it's very... Aggressive in a way, Aggressive right? and very, I mean, there's a lot of combative language with war terms Yeah, in warfare there. Uh, yeah. analogies. And... Exactly. And I think it's interesting. I mean, this was something that we actually thought about when we decided on the title of our podcast. Yeah, we, we had long conversations 
conversations. We had long conversations. How should we call this podcast? And this, these conversations happened after her talk. So one of the things that we wanted to think about was not to use combative language in our title. So we kind of decided the AMR studio is a neutral yeah. name. And uh, I, know we, studio I know we mentioned AMR Revolutions was one of our ideas. And that's a bit of a combative. I mean, it's not super combative, but we kind of wanted to pull it back to a neutral. Natural setup. This is just a blank uh, or like a clean slate for just coming in and talking about AMR uh, yeah. from different perspectives. So and we're putting no... the focus on the researchers also. I mean, yes, it's that's what we want to highlight. Yeah. There is no no fighting, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much, Jenny, for interviewing Dr. Kevin Lee. Uh, it was a pleasure to listen to the interview and then also very nice to discuss with you yeah. the, the topics. And certainly... Probably you and I, and I hope our listeners have learned how looking back at the past and looking at history, actually, it's important when we want to understand our present. Yeah. It was a very fun interview to do, very fun discussion to do. And I also want to ask our listeners to go and try to read this chapter if you can find it. It's a very interesting read, and I think a lot of people would benefit from it. Yes. So now it's time for some news. Our news segments today are actually kind of related and about something that we haven't talked that much in the podcast before. Poe, can you tell us what stewardship is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, stewardship is basically, in terms of antibiotics, uh, the good practice uh, and usage of antibiotics. So we don't overabuse the power of these drugs. We don't misuse these drugs, but we also use it appropriately when needed. Yeah. So that's in summary. Yeah, so today we have, uh, we're going to talk about two news uh, that are related to stewardship, as Paul just mentioned. The first news we want to talk about is about a recent article supported by GARPI and published on December the 3rd in Lancet Infectious Diseases Journal. And this paper has the title of Consumption of oral antibiotic formulations for young children according to the WHO Access Watch Reserve, which is called AWARE, <laughs> antibiotic groups. An analysis of sales data from 70 middle-income and high-income countries. And this paper is really a step forward into the stewardship of uh, antibiotic use in children. And mm -hmm. I think first we should uh, explain a little bit what this AWARE system is by mm -hmm. WHO. Yeah. So the AWARE system, as you said, Ava, it stands for Access Watch in Reserve, which are basically new ways that we classify antibiotics. This index was introduced to the WHO's essential medicines list for children, which is basically, I mean, as the name says, a list of medicines that the WHO deems as essential. These three groups, the AXIS group includes antibiotics that can be used as the first choice for most infections. So these are the ones that should be used the most. The point of using these antibiotics first is in part that they might be less toxic or less likely to drive future resistance. So there's some thought behind why these are considered the first choice. For watch antibiotics, these are kind of second choice antibiotics that can absolutely be used if necessary, but should be used sparingly and with consideration. And then reserve antibiotics should be, like the name says, reserved to be used as a last resort. Yeah. So this article, actually, uh, it's interesting because it's looking at the antibiotic consumption in young children. This means children younger than five years old of age. And 
this uh, is of particular interest for antibiotic stewardship because actually children are big consumers of antibiotics, especially children outside of hospitals. The numbers uh, are at, uh, right now about the 90% of all antibiotics used, uh, especially in middle and high income countries, 90% of all antibiotics used is used in the community. This means it's used by the patients at home, not in hospitals. So any type of data we can get of how how these antibiotics are consumed outside of the hospitals, the more data we have, the more opportunities and chances for good stewardship and good use of these antibiotics. The results that this article, this study give us uh, are very good base for different countries to implement the stewardship measures that can be used to try to minimize the use of watch and reserve classes. Actually, one positive note of this, um, these results is that only of all the 70 countries that are part of the study, only one country had a high level uh, use of reserve antibiotics. Yeah. So this means that even though the, this AWARE system was only introduced on 2017, because these results uh, actually are compiled data from from years before 2017. Yeah, from 2015. From 2015 onwards. That means that actually countries are doing relatively good into not using this uh, type of reserve antibiotics classified mm -hmm. by WHO. And actually, even when they say that that one country had a high level, that level was quite low. It's just that it was a measurable level. Measurable level. Reserve. So they're still, they still weren't used to mm -hmm. a high level, but relatively high. So this data is really important for us to have. I mean, this can be very useful in trying to determine stewardship practices in these different countries and what needs to be done. But it's really hard to be sure of the data that you're getting. I mean, it's really hard to collect it, this kind of data. Yeah. So some of the problems with this study, I mean, they're basing everything on sales numbers, not really antibiotics consumed. But they're extrapolating from the sales because that might be the easiest way to do it. So this is official sales data. Yeah, it's official sales data. And in some countries, they don't really think that that's all the sales. They extrapolate to what they think the total sales number is based on information in the country, if we've understood it right. Mm -hmm. But they kind of did this on a country by country basis. And then, of course, some of the antibiotic doses sold to children, they might not take the whole dose because it's like the package is bigger than what's yes, actually prescribed. package units sold. Yeah, exactly. The prescribed amount. Yeah, but it's it's a number to base it off of, and you're still putting these antibiotics into the system. Then. Yeah, and also the I way they do it to try to get as accurate data as possible for children is that they are looking at the antibiotics sold in child-friendly formulations, exactly. so to speak. Yeah, so they don't actually have the data on whether or not it was a child who was prescribed the antibiotic. They're basing it on the, like the formulation of what the was sold and extrapolating who yeah. have taken it. Because these doses wouldn't be appropriate for adults. They're different dosing, different dosing, and, and also different... different way of taking it antibiotic. Yeah, exactly. Because we assume that very young children cannot take these big solid pills of antibiotics right. that adults are normally yeah. taking. But this is still a really good effort along the way. I mean, there's no perfect way of doing this. And it looks like this group has really put a lot of effort into thinking, why are we going to do it this way? Trying to think about all these question marks and all these things that might not be perfectly represented in the data that they have. They try to take these things into account. And definitely it's a step forward getting the information and being able to analyze the information and yeah. therefore have a basis to to uh, promote new stewardship yeah. practices if they are needed in the different countries. Definitely. Even if the data isn't perfectly collected, I mean, it has such a big value anyways. We mm -hmm. need something to base our decisions off of. So this was a good and interesting article and study. Yeah. yeah. 
So continuing with the news, we just talked about study that had to do with human consumption of antibiotics, where there's a lot of potential for stewardship. But uh, antibiotics are not just used for uh, human medicine. They're also used in veterinary medicine, and mm. there are other uses that might be happening in, in the food production. Mm. So now we're going to talk about something that has to do with animal stewardship of antibiotic use. So on December 18th, 2018, a new comprehensive framework to strengthen stewardship and antibiotic use in farm animals was announced. And this was a kind of the end work of a long dialogue between the Pew Charitable Trusts and the Farm Foundation. It was monitored by that and stakeholders in the food production. Uh, big stakeholders, Big right? stakeholders, including, uh, I mean, some that people might recognize. McDonald's Corporation is, of course, huge. Uh, Smithfield's Foods. Tyson Foods, Walmart, uh, several national producers of food in like several national producers boards and councils in the U.S. They all agreed on this comprehensive framework focusing on increasing stewardship activities in the U.S. And, and this is really important. I mean, this, these are some of the major stakeholders, in, at least in the U.S., in the food producing industry. And some of them are even international. Yeah, so some of them are about big companies. International sides. Yeah. And I mean, this is kind of where it needs to start. There's a lot of work to be done. I mean, if these big producers, they, of course, don't have their own farms, maybe they take in products from other farms, but they need to maybe start putting that pressure on these smaller farms to minimize the use of antibiotics when it's unnecessary or the misuse of antibiotics. And it really kind of needs to come from above. Yeah, they need to take responsibility for what happens on the farms where they are exactly. actually getting the animals from, right? So mm -hmm. they have the power to say, we want our farms to be taking these and these steps yeah. to use less antibiotics, to use antibiotics in a better way. And it shows that they're taking it seriously. They're taking this problem seriously, which shows their providers that if they want to sell to these bigger companies, they have to take this seriously as well. Yes. So it's a really good push. And I mean, it can kind of be compared to some of the big retail companies. If they want to show that they're serious about reducing child labor in factories in different parts of the world that are, where the factories are maybe run by subcontractors, they have to show from above. This is important. This is a problem that we care about and we're taking responsibility. And we are not going to allow our subcontractors to undergo such and such behaviors. Yeah, exactly. Right? So this is a good step along the way. Yeah, yeah this is a maybe a small thing here now today, but it actually means a lot yeah. when it comes to the use of antibiotic in the and it's really a necessary in step. farming. We right. wouldn't get very far without these kind of frameworks, including these big stakeholders. And this is actually a work that's been done for the past two years. So it's a conversation that happened over the past two years. And we are going to leave some information in the show notes that you can read where it is all coming from, what is the basis for this, where it all started. And this mm -hmm. is kind of the result of this long time work. Yeah, as well as information about the other article we talked about today. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> all the good information in the show notes. Good. So with that, it's time for us to wrap up, I think. Uh, thanks for listening to us today. Yeah, we hope that you enjoyed our uh, episode and that you're going to be here with us next month. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.